You're listening to All Things Cognition, a Psychonomic Society podcast. Now here's your host, Laura Mickis. with Lisa Lever about being a guest editor for the special issue of the Psychonomic Society journal, Learning and Behavior. The special issue is in honor of Stephen Lee, whose interview is a little bit later in this episode. Lisa, thanks for agreeing to talk with me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. How did the editorship come about? Anna is a member of the Comparative Cognition Society, so she had initially agreed to edit the special edition, and she asked if I would help and be a co-editor with her. And I was thrilled to do that because Stephen has been a mentor to me for the past nearly 20 years. And so it was a real honor to be asked to be able to do something to celebrate his career. How did you meet each other? I was hired partly by Stephen about 20 years ago as a lecturer here at the university, fresh out of my PhD. That doesn't really happen anymore. To cover his teaching when he took on the role of deputy vice chancellor. And I've been here ever since. You are, well, I guess you're probably both lucky, but I had the honor of interviewing him and meeting him for the first time, and he's just really knowledgeable and seems like such a great guy, so to have such a great colleague. He's a really generous, brilliant man. I could have talked to him forever, so I I think I'm a little jealous of you. (laughs) (laughs) While we're singing his praises, what do you think his most important contribution to the field is? Oh, that is a really difficult question to answer. Stephen has contributed so much to the field. He's probably most well known for his work on concept formation, which formed the foundation of his career right through from his PhD. He's done an awful lot of really important work there. He's done stuff on economics in humans. He's done a lot on seabirds, diving seabirds. What? He just, he's involved in so many different things. He's a proper, real sort of old-fashioned gentleman. He's interested in everything and he's curious about everything and he's keen to be involved. That's great. Stephen gave a master lecture at the Comparative Cognition Conference. Was that well received and a lot of people in attendance? I think everyone at the conference attends the master lectures as a general rule and Stephen's was exactly the same. It was really well attended. The room was packed. And it was really well received. I think Stephen broke the mold a little bit. I haven't been to too many Comparative Cognition Society meetings, but the standard talk that I have seen of the master lecture tends to be a bit of a a rehash of everything that, that that particular person has done in their career. So Stephen did a little bit of that. He gave a little bit of an overview, but then he spent the majority of the master lecture presenting a new model that him and some colleagues and including me have come up with about behavioral flexibility and so he presented quite a lot of new ideas as well which was great. Did you enjoy being a guest editor for the special issue? I really did. I haven't got a lot of experience editing and it was quite daunting because it papers were coming from so many different areas and fields that were influenced by Stephen so it wasn't necessarily completely in my area of expertise but it was really interesting. There were a lot of people involved that I have worked with in the past that I've known in the past, previous PhD students and Stevens as well. So it was really nice to be involved in that and to see it come together and really interesting to see the diversity of work that he's influenced. That was Lisa Lever. Next up is Stephen Lee. 
I'm so excited that I get to meet and interview a legend in psychological science, Professor Stephen Lee. Thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed, Stephen. It's a pleasure. All right. So we're here because there's a special issue, March 2020, in the Psychonomic Society Journal, Learning and Behavior. And the issue is in honor of your work and the influence that it's had on the field. What was your response when you learned about that? Well, the special issue is a consequence of something else. The Comparative Cognition Conference, always known as CO3, which is held every year in Florida in the spring, always features what's called a master lecture. And this is an hour-long lecture given by someone who's been active in the field for a long time. And it's a real privilege to be allowed to speak to CO3 for an hour, because normally speaking, the maximum slot you're allowed is 10 minutes. So you got an extra 50. Yeah, that's a, it's a really serious uh, advantage. Well, wait a minute. I found on YouTube that video is an hour and 11 minutes or so. Ah, uh, Well, I always take a bit more than I'm offered. <laughs> nice. And that is then followed up, or has been for a good number of years now, with a special issue of a journal, which features a paper that's based more or less closely on the lecture, and then other papers by people who are involved in similar sort of work to the uh, person who's given the master lecture. And when they asked me if I would do the master lecture the following year, I was... Uh, a, extremely pleased, and B, extremely flattered, because this is, as I say, is the Comparative Cognition Conference. And although in many ways comparative cognition was my first love as a researcher and has been the most consistent theme in my research work, uh, I certainly have not devoted all my efforts to it. I'm a butterfly. I've done bits of this and bits of that. Within the animal field, I've also worked in behavioral ecology, but I also have a completely different strand of research in economic psychology. So to bring it back to the special issue, you wrote a paper for the issue called Behavioral Flexibility, a Review, a Model, and some Exploratory Tests. And so my first inclination was to ask you, what is behavioral flexibility? But I started reading your paper, and you don't define it right away. You go through some background first. So do you want to do the same, or do you prefer to define what behavioral flexibility is now? Well, the trouble with behavioral flexibility as a concept is that different people have used the term in a variety of different ways. So in that paper, I was trying to sort through the different ways people have used the term to see if there are common strands, to see if we could come at something that would be a workable definition. But I'm not someone who thinks that you should always start your research with a definition of what you're looking at. In my view, useful definitions emerge from investigating a topic, because actually until we start investigating a topic, we don't really know what the effective constructs are. And uh, it's a big mistake, in my view, to prematurely pin down a construct with a rigid definition it's that whole business of cleaving nature at the joints. See what the important constructs are and then give them the useful names. You tested a model to narrow down the meaning of behavioral flexibility. Is that right? Well, mm. I filtered through the historical usage of the term behavioral flexibility. And it's interesting. The first use we could find was actually by a primatologist who had been working in the context of continental 
ethology, Lorentz, Tinberg, and people like that, the idea of behavior is very much something fixed and given in a particular species of animal. So if you want to understand behavior, you need to understand the species. And he was, in fact, looking at behavior in troops of monkeys in the field and discovering that different troops behaved in different ways that could only be really understood in terms of the different histories of those troops, the different things that had happened to them, what we would nowadays call animal culture. And so in his paper, he wields the concept behavioral flexibility to explain why behavior is not bound down by Lorentzian fixed action patterns and innate releasing mechanisms and things of that nature. Now, of course, to someone coming from the other tradition of studying animal behavior, that's a psychologist studying animal learning, an activity that went on much more in, uh, in America compared with ethology, the idea that animals change their behavior through life is not exactly strange. Right. And what learning theorists had to discover in the big collision that occurred between learning theory and ethology started happening in the 1950s, was going on vigorously in the 60s and 70s when I was beginning to be a researcher, what learning theorists had to discover was that an awful lot of what animals do is to be explained just by what kind of animal they are. And the behavior of a monkey is not the same as the behavior of a rat. And that's because one's a monkey and the other's a rat. <laughs> and they have different bodies and they have different brains. And you need to take those things into account. For people coming out of that psychological background, talking about flexibility as just the capacity to learn, in effect, makes the term empty. Mm. Because from a psychological point of view, animals do learn. That's what they do. That's why we study them. Right. And that led people to adopt the term behavioral flexibility for something rather more subtle than the mere ability to learn particularly in the context of what we tend to call animal problem solving, although nowadays under more ecological influence, we often refer to them as food extraction tasks. Mm -hmm. They have a long history in psychology going back to Thorndike and these cats in puzzle boxes. But the characteristic of these situations is that you take an animal, you don't try to modify its behavior to show it how to do something totally novel, something it's never done before. You face it with a situation where its current repertoire of responses is not going to get it to the food that's hidden, but manifest, mm. perhaps by smell or sight in the situation. And you're looking at how animals come to find a solution in that situation. If they do. If they do. Yeah. Some animals, some problems, no solution ever found. And one of the things you find is that with a given problem, some individuals will solve it much more quickly than others, and animals of some species will solve problems much more quickly than others. And one of the concepts that's been wielded to try and explain these differences is the idea of behavioral flexibility, that maybe some individuals or some species are more flexible than others, more able to change their behavior in response to failure to resolve problem in the situation. And so some of the more modern uses of the term behavioral flexibility reflect that emphasis. 
we got into constructing a model to try to find some precision in something that would make a difference to how quickly animals learn. So the, the model that we constructed was based on an idea of an animal with a given repertoire of behaviours faced with a problem. And some of those behaviours might be successful, others would not. Some might have a high, as we would call it, operant level that say be likely to occur, uh, others would not. And some would be easy to learn, what we call prepared, uh, and others would not. And we wanted to model a problem-solving situation where there were a large number of possible responses available, and then introduce into that an overall parameter that we hoped would correspond to behavioral flexibility. And that's your U parameter. That is the magic parameter, yeah. U. This episode has two parts. This is the end of part one of my interview with Professor Stephen Lee. Come back to listen to part two to learn about Stephen's magical parameter, U, pizza and squirrels, Stephen's favorite and least favorite animals to work with, and what we're missing if we only study humans. See you soon. Thank you for listening to All Things Cognition, a Psychonomic Society podcast. If you would like to share your feedback on this episode, we hope you'll get in touch. You can find us online at www.psychonomic.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. Reviews help us to grow our audience and reach more people with the latest scientific research. <laughs>